Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. My name is Juan Zarate, Chairman and Co-Founder of Fin. Welcome to this latest episode. This discussion is about virtual currencies, adoption, risks, and regulation. What's next? Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White knights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. We have two of the great experts in the space who are tracking and following the environment, the issue, the risks, vulnerabilities in the space. Very happy to be with them today. Uh, with me is Dave Murray, the Vice President for Product Development and Services at Finn, a longtime senior treasury official, uh, deep thinker in the space, tracking everything related to virtual currencies, especially vulnerabilities and regulations. Uh, and with us as well is Yaya Fanusi, the Director of Analysis at the Center for Sanctions and Illicit Finance at FDD, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, author of uh, a recent report, January of 2018, Bitcoin Laundering, a uh, report issued by CSIF and Elliptic, one of the most important recent reports on uh, money laundering and Bitcoin. Dave Yaya, welcome to you both. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, always love to have these uh, conversations because there's so much to get into, but let's Let's start first, Yaya, with your sort of view of what's happening in the space. Uh, there's a lot of conversation around uh, the use of virtual currencies, obviously vulnerabilities, um, the expansion of exchanges. There's an explosion of the exchanges, an explosion of actual virtual currencies. And a question as to whether or not uh, virtual currencies and the ecosystem is emerging in terms of broader adoption. Uh, what are you seeing in the environment, Yaya? What's what's happening in this space, and what should uh, listeners know? Oh, thanks, Juan. And um, if I can, maybe I'll start with a little bit of uh, de some definitions and scene setting. Uh, even with the term virtual currency, so folks know what we're talking about. Um, broadly speaking, when we when we speak of virtual currencies, we're talking about digital representations of of money value. So generally, and that's a broad category. Um, often that um, that that deals with uh, virtual monies, even in, in in games in gaming, where you may have Second Life and Linden dollars. Uh, usually, that relates to to a sort of centralized uh, gaming system where you have virtual uh, virtual money. But often when we hear the term today, we're thinking about cryptocurrencies or other digital currencies, which is a newer technology where you have um, these digital units and the transfer, digital units generated and transfers confirmed in a decentralized way with fancy um, computer science technology that we don't need to go into here. But these cryptocurrencies, uh, these types of virtual currencies have become more more popular, particularly uh, we saw this in 2017, more in institutional interest. Um, they do solve one problem, which I'll, I'll say because a lot of listeners may wonder, okay, so what's the thing about virtual currencies? Why are they um, of interest now? And technologically, um, these this technology is, is important because 
they solve a problem, uh, something known as the double spending problem in the digital world, which is in the digital world, it's very difficult to have uh, value transferred and not duplicated without some sort of third party, right? A third party that sees a ledger and credits and debits. And these currencies, cryptocurrencies, these types of virtual currencies do that through the technology. So what's the state of play? I mean, in the past few years, we've seen high interest um, in buying, holding, and sometimes transferring these virtual currencies. Um, this sort of exploded, particularly in 2017, where you had the technology develop in a way where not only were people trying to buy Bitcoin and holding Bitcoin, but there were new new tokens, new virtual currencies created. There are thousands of them now. So you have this environment now where um, a lot of these tokens are created. Um, there's, uh, there's really a story that people have bought into, which is the story about the future, which, which is that these types of uh, virtual currencies will be valuable, valuable for computer applications, valuable for, uh, for transacting across borders, minimizing um, friction between banks possibly, um, and just enabling more uh, capital transfer and capital movement through in a digital way. And so that's, that's sort of where we are, this idea that these types of currencies might be might be more valuable in the future. And to your point, uh, you know, listeners are obviously familiar with Bitcoin, maybe have heard of Ethereum, but to your point, there are thousands of these uh, virtual currencies at this point. And part of the value proposition in the early days for those that have both developed and been proponents of virtual currencies and the ecosystem around it is the autonomy and even anonymity, potentially, that comes with um, the ability to control the token to control the transactions, to be able to engage in peer-to-peer value transfer in a way that doesn't have a classic institution as the intermediary, whether that institution's a bank or a central authority, a central bank or a finance ministry, that kind of thing. So this is part, to your point, it's part of a not just a technology, but also a paradigmatic way of thinking about the future, that there is going to be more freedom, autonomy, even anonymity around how financial transactions operate, which, of course, Dave, I'm going to turn right to you, abuts right against the fundamentals of the international financial system and regulation, which is all about transparency, accountability, and traceability. And so, Dave, can you talk to us about a, some of the vulnerabilities and risks we've seen, uh, especially with in recent cases. And then, Yaya, I'm going to turn to you, too, because you've done some good research on uh, what we're seeing with nation states uh, and their use of virtual currencies. So, Dave, what have you seen? Yeah, thanks, Juan. So, I think it's important to look at the traits of virtual currencies that make them attractive to illicit actors. Um, you know, the first one and the one that I think gets the most, uh, the most attention is the potential for anonymity. I don't think that one should actually get the most attention. I, mean, th- I think the three of us could spend the rest of the day here figuring out ways to, to be anonymous and stay anonymous in the international financial system. In the current. In the current, state right? Of in With the, bank- the use of just, cash. Let's just say in the banking system. Yeah. We could we could figure out a way to do that. Uh, so that that's not a that's not a trait that's unique to a virtual currency. It's it's something that's that's widely available through a number of services. Uh, so second, irrevocable settlement. Now we're now we're starting to now we're starting to narrow the we're starting to narrow the field of, of potential services, um, because there aren't a lot of financial services in the banking system that offer irrevocable settlement, right? I mean, the, the irrevocable settlement payment systems are reserved for for really specialized payments that need irrevocable settlement. A lot of the other payments go through 
systems where payments can be reversed. Mm-hmm. And then the third is is peer to peer. Uh, and now we've and and now we've really narrowed the the menu of the menu of possible options, uh, and you know I mean those three those three traits, those are also the traits of cash, and it, you know we know that we know that cash is the ultimate money laundering vehicle. It's why we put so many protections in place around cash. If you're taking cash or other monetary instruments out of the United States or into the United States, in excess of ten thousand dollars, you have to fill out a form. If you deposit ten thousand dollars or more into your bank account. Your bank needs to fill out a form. Uh, if you use if you use ten thousand dollars or more cash and monetary instruments uh, to buy a car, your car dealer needs to fill out a form. So we've put in a lot of we've put in a lot of protections around cash, yeah, including most recently more reporting around cash transactions and the purchase of high end real estate in particular markets right. in the U.S. Right for precisely that reason. Right. So you know, then the virtual currencies come along. And not only do they do they share a lot of the traits that cash has, but they can also be used non face to face, which actually gives them which actually gives them an advantage over cash. So for an illicit actor, the virtual currencies, the implementations that are out there, they check a lot of boxes: uh, high potential for anonymity, peer to peer transactions, and irrevocable settlement. Because if you're doing business with if you're doing business with other crooks. Uh, you know, there's a there's a very high potential for you to get burned, and if you if you receive payment and then you deliver goods, and then the customer reverses the payment, you know, it's not like you can go to court and try to enforce your contract. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're stuck because you're dealing you're dealing in illicit goods. Uh, so they they really need all three of those traits, and all three of those traits I think are really important to making these these underground economies work. Whether it's whether it's online trafficking in, in prescription drugs, or whether it's trafficking in in malware and and other hacking tools. So you know that's really the starting point for the vulnerabilities with with virtual currency. Now I mean one case that I think was particularly interesting recently, the indictment of the of the GRU officials. Uh, by the office of the special these counsel. These are the Russian intelligence That's uh, right. officials who were That's right. involved in elements of money laundering and had Bitcoin uh, in, involved in it. Can you explain what, That's right. what, what so, that was about? So they used they used Bitcoin to purchase uh, some kind of cyber infrastructure. It wasn't specified, uh, but they used they used Bitcoin to spec- to purchase some kind of cyber infrastructure in the United States. Uh, and some of the Bitcoin that they used, they had mined themselves. Now, the transparency regime that, that the United States has put around Bitcoin really focuses on the exchangers. Uh, because In essence, the consolidators. Or that's the- right. So the people who are taking fiat currency and providing, and providing virtual currency on the other side of that. So it's focused on the exchangers. Well, the GRU didn't go through the exchangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they went through the exchangers for some of their, their transactions, but for some of their transactions, they mined their own Bitcoin. Uh, those coins, when they were mined, were, were effectively anonymous. Uh, so by using, by using that payment tool, by using Bitcoin that they had mined, they were able to circumvent financial transparency. I mean, if they had used a, if they had used a Visa card, um, you know, the, the GRU yeah. corporate Visa, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that would have set off some red flags, I think, for the, I, I think for the, for the companies that, that were dealing with them. Yeah. Uh, because they would have, if they had known that a Russian intelligence service was on the other side of the transaction, maybe they wouldn't have done the deal. Maybe they, uh, maybe they would have done the deal, but increased scrutiny. Maybe they would have done the deal and let the FBI know that, 
hey, you know, and by the way, we it, just yeah. we, we just sold server space to the GRU. Uh, you might want to take a look at it, uh, which would have which you know would have put the United States in a much better position to interdict that activity as it was ongoing instead of instead of following it with a prosecution now two years after the fact. I, you know, I mean, it, in some ways, a prosecution is very satisfying. In the case of a national security harm, it's less so because the harm's already been done. Very interesting. I think, you know, most listeners will, who are following these issues will know the historic cases of Liberty Reserve and Silk Road and even Alpha Bay, which are these uh, networks exposed by U.S. law enforcement uh, where virtual currencies were being used in essence, within those networks or economies for purchase of all sorts of illicit goods, uh, drugs, arms, even human trafficking. Um, Yaya, given what, what Dave said, what else have you seen in terms of risks and vulnerabilities uh, in this space that's of interest to you? Well, uh, I'll even actually latch on to one thing David mentioned about the vulnerabilities, which you, you touched on, but I want to sort of sort of reframe because I don't think we discussed this as much. It might not seem to be so illicit on face value, but just the issue of security in custodianship, which you talk about in terms of having one, so, you know, irrevocable payments. Um, this presents a whole host of of difficulties because now you have this asset class where your security of it relies on you having possession of a of a private key, um, and so you know it, it gets much more difficult to manage and to, to you have a lot more more risks with these types of assets, and that's one thing I just wanted to um, to, to put out there. Uh, in terms of the illicit risks, I would I would separate them into two categories. Uh, the first is, and this is something that we've been researching at, at the Center on Sanctions uh, and Illicit Finance, um, what illicit actors, folks who we know are, are doing bad things, how they're using it now. And the way I would say is, you know, most of that is what we're aware of in terms of, you know, dark, dark net markets and the like. That's what people have people usually think about with, with Bitcoin in particular, um, to transact on the dark web. Uh, um, what we've seen in the past couple of years, at a very minimal level, but interesting, um, the use of non-state actors like terrorists um, who have been doing crowdfunding, crowdsourcing campaigns, in some cases very publicly, um, on social media channels, putting up a Bitcoin address and trying to raise money. Mm -hmm. um, I say it's, it's been minimal in terms of actual capital raise, not a lot. We've looked at these campaigns. We've actually, I mean, the, the benefit of virtual currencies, um, for, for the most part, is you usually can look at the transactions. You can see how much of how many funds uh, an address has raised, an address where you sort of keep your where you receive and hold your digital currency. Um, they haven't raised a lot of a lot of money, but it's interesting because in the uh, two years that that I've been following this, I've seen this progression where groups have uh, tried to raise money through Bitcoin, but more recently we've seen them switch to because the biggest fault of these crowd 
funding campaigns, it's very easy to put up an address, but it's much more difficult to be a donor, right? To donor these camp to donate to these campaigns and stay hidden. You have to be, you know, very smart, use mixers, but it's 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 more tricky. With an, an anonymous coin, that could allow for easier, um, you know, easier access. Thing is, these coins are, um, are are not as popular, so that's probably why we haven't seen them. So we're I think we're going to see this. I think the 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 illicit use of cryptocurrencies will reflect the broader um, familiarity and social familiarity with these tokens. We're going to see criminals use them. We're going to see terrorists use them. But there's a second category that I think uh, you know, that I'm very interested in, which is what uh, particularly state actors are saying they want to do with these with with this technology. And in some cases, they're doing it. Great example: um, uh, the government of Venezuela, the Maduro regime, which a few months ago you know, stated it would create a crypto its own state cryptocurrency, the Petro, the Petro. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, which has been a bit of a flop, um, but they were very clear that they wanted to use the regime wanted to use this in order to uh, evade U.S. sanctions a- in an environment where, within Venezuela, because of the collapsing economy, because of the the the, the collapsing Bolivar, um, many folks on the ground are moving towards cryptocurrencies. They're trying to use cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, particularly Bitcoin, these independent public blockchain um, virtual currencies, to transact to hold value. Um, so we're seeing that. We're also seeing Russia. Russia has also very publicly stated that it sees this technology as a way to um, make itself uh, uh, impervious to U.S. sanction power and EU sanction power. Um, even more recently, we've seen Iran. Iran even say that it intends to create a national cryptocurrency very soon in response or as a way to to get around sanctions. This is not so much. Uh, sanctions evasion happening now. Um, I'm sure that you know, as long as you have illicit actors, there's going to be a way to get them to transfer them funds. What I think this points to, though, is this idea of this new technology enabling, at least theoretically, these actors to create an alternative way of transacting across borders that they intend to uh, to, to develop a new system that would be in my in, you know the term I like to use is sanctions resistance. Um, again, it's it's has not. That has not developed, but they're certainly telegraphing it. Let me ask you both before we turn to the question of how this is all regulated or how authorities should be thinking about uh, the use and utility of virtual currencies. Um, why haven't we seen broader adoption by criminal groups, networks, terrorist groups, even rogue states? Um, is it that there isn't enough of a, an established ecosystem? Is it that the virtual currencies are too volatile? Um, is it that there, there's not enough familiarity or technical savvy within some of these networks? What is it uh, that has restricted kind of the entry and force into the digital economy with virtual currencies by these illicit or rogue actors? I'll say one thing is just the friction involved with um, purchasing, holding, taking care of, dealing with custody. Um, right now, the, the virtual currency world is in a you know, in a, a, a technical developer's world. It's, you know, the folks who are using it the most or who are purchasing it, for the most part are folks who are familiar with 
technology and have been and, and, and have that sort of uh, cyber knowledge to, to deal with the, the challenge of setting up a wallet, right? These things are um, not that they're super complicated, but they're just not the, the user interface for, uh, for dealing with or acquiring cryptocurrencies just has not pervaded the general you know, public's consciousness yet. Yet, I think that's that's been the reason why we haven't seen as much of it. I mean, now one exception though would be cyber criminals, folks who deal in the digital space where that's that's where they do their crime and that's how they operate. Now those folks use it, you know, or you know, you know, use it a lot. Um, I do think that's changing, and that's changing. It's it's changing slowly, but what I would say that right now the virtual currency environment uh, is an ecosystem mostly of developers. Right, these are software people who understand the technology and are creating all types of new applications, new platforms. The thing is, even though there's demand for for buying cryptocurrencies, usually for speculation, there's not yet a lot of demand for these virtual currencies for actual functions, for actual function, you know, functional tools. And that's because you know developers are developed, people are building, but the customer de- demand hasn't really developed yet. And so you know, it depends what side you're on. If you think that it's just a matter of time and that there will be a killer app, there will be much more use and a reason to use Bitcoin instead of Visa. Um, um, or, or, or some other, you know, or maybe this will will fade away. Um, it's it's really difficult to say. Dave, what do you think? So I I think you're right about the about the problem being one of utility. Um, there aren't a lot of places that you can spend virtual currency right now, and it, you know, I mean, if you're a if you're a terrorist group, I mean, you have particular you have particular financial needs. Uh, you may need to you may need to pay fighters in a place where there's no financial infrastructure whatsoever. That's going to happen with that's going to happen with cash. Uh, it, it's going to be the best tool. I mean, you're, you're going to be face to face. It's going to happen with cash. Uh, so I think the first problem is one of utility. I mean, I do think there's also a usability issue in the in the in the idea that you're going to hold and spend fractions of of bitcoins. I mean, I haven't met anybody who who said to me that you know what I really need is I need more decimals. Like I didn't do enough decimals today, I really need more decimals. <laughs> I need to calculate more in my right, life. Right. <laughs> right. You know, I'd really like to I really like to add and subtract fractions that don't have common denominators. So, I think it's going to struggle with with the general public's um, desire to do a lot of math every day. And, and I think and I that's why I'd say you know, I think we're looking this is a develop developer ecosystem. I think a lot of, you know, the way Bitcoin was first one as you mentioned, you you know, first introduced as this way of doing peer-to-peer payments. Uh, I think the the jury is is in that. That's not what. That's not the the, the killer app. The, at least globally, that's not what people are using this for. They're not using it to buy cups of coffee, um, for the most part. Um, but I think what might be a, a value proposition. Um, again, we we can can do sort of debate on this. Is as does the does. Does the let's say the the um, uh, extensive decimal points that you pointed out um, does that allow maybe for new types of applications, new types of calculations? Maybe not for peer to peer, but if I'm creating a you know solar you know solar solar farm or, or something where I want to you know allocate certain units of power and I want to deal maybe within the fractions of pennies. Like there are there are you know, probably are use cases, technical technological use cases, but not for the general public. And I. Think Think again. That's where the jury is out. How is this going to manifest? Will there be a breakthrough? Again, we're getting into sort of specu- speculation uh, territory here. Let, let's turn to this very interesting question because it affects the the issue of innovation, um, development, also regulation, and how you deal with these risks. You know how how 
has the U.S., how has the global community thought about regulating virtual currencies? How do you see this evolving, Dave? And, and just for the listeners' um, sake, uh, just to note, I've been a senior advisor, outside advisor for Coinbase for the last five years. So that influences uh, my thinking and obviously uh, been exposed to a lot of the developments over the last five years. But I want to make sure listen, listeners understood that. Um, how do you, Dave, think about regulation and how it impacts not just firms like Coinbase, but the entire ecosystem and, and what's evolving? Well, I mean, I think one thing you've seen from from regulators, and I think this is reflected out in, in what the FAT has published and then what's come out of the U.S. government, is they want to embrace new financial technologies. Uh, you know, I mean, the payment systems that we have right now are actually are, are actually pretty good. Uh, they they move a lot of they move a lot of money every day um, quickly quickly, all the way down to the consumer level. People people understand them. If you if you narrow down to our to our retail payment systems, our card based payment systems, there are consumer protections in place that consumers understand and I think like, and that that retailers are willing to accept. Uh, so. You know, you start from a place where the systems we have right now are are pretty good, and a government that wants to encourage that wants to encourage innovation still yet more innovation in what's already a in what's already a crowded space. So I think you've seen regulators uh, adopt a very flexible approach, recognizing that there there needs to be some improvements in payment systems in right. the remittance corridors for example right. no question. Create less friction right. lower costs that kind right. of right i mean there there are still there's still parts of the population that are underserved and each new service has the potential to 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 bring more people into the into the into the financial system in a serious way uh, so encouraging regula- encouraging innovation is something that regulators have absolutely wanted to do and it's been one of their it's been one of their key goals i think uh, so you've seen you've you've seen I think a fair amount of flexibility, particularly particularly with respect to Bitcoin, uh, because there there are a lot of there there are some key parts of the AML regime that a that a Bitcoin transaction just doesn't comply with. Like, I mean, it really doesn't comply with the travel rule in the same way that in the same way that a that a that a bank to bank payment complies with the, complies with the travel rule. You know, there, there's information out there on the there's information out there on the blockchain, but. It's not necessarily the same information that's required by the that, that's required by the travel rule. Right, and and the travel rule for listeners is the rule requiring uh, that a, that a payment that is is transferred have information about the originator and the beneficiary, and that that information travel with the transaction. And so that that is not fulfilled in the sort of the the virtual currency world or in the exchanges. Right, not I mean, technically, if, you, if you have someone come into one exchanger through a come into a virtual currency through one exchanger and then conduct a transaction with a person who goes out through another exchanger I mean arguably that's one that that's one transaction that started with the exchanger and, and say country a and and ended with the exchanger and country B the exchanger and country B doesn't have the information about the about the originator's identity for example um, that's not on the that's not on the that's not on the blockchain they don't know where that money came from uh, which you know, I think make th- makes things makes things very difficult, and I, th- I think it puts I think it puts virtual currencies in a place that that's going to make it hard for them to evolve with the rest of the financial system. I mean, the mission that the mission the counter illicit finance mission is is evolving. Um, you know, it started almost fifty years ago now with a desire to create records that were useful for for tax purposes, for criminal investigations, for regulatory purposes. 
so all backward looking, right? I mean, we mm-hmm. wanted to catch bad guys, and it's evolved now to a to a place where we want our we want our financial institutions to be in a position to pre- to prevent harm. Yeah. It's a preventative uh, paradigm. It's a preventative it's a preventative paradigm now. And if a financial institution doesn't have information like, well, where did this money actually come from? It makes it very difficult for them to prevent. An investigator may may be able to use the public blockchain and other information they develop through the course of the investigation to put everything back together. Uh, but they're going to rely on tools that that the financial institution just doesn't just doesn't have, and it may not even be information that was that was even created in a useful manner at the time the transaction happened. And to your point, just just to put a, a fine point on this, I think in the U.S. context in particular, but you've seen this in in Western markets, there has been a regulatory emphasis on the the exchanges, the wallets, the consolidators. That that is to say, where you have an aggregation of both transactions and customer data, where you can onboard a customer like you would in a bank and get their identifier information and verify who they are, et cetera, and then track um, how they're transacting with their wallet, with their exchanges. That has been the central focus and and the hope and desire that that provides at least some uh, regulatory window into what's happening in the space. I think with the industry as well, especially the uh, the legitimate actors trying to develop analytics that give them a better sense of where vulnerabilities and suspect activities are happening, even if you don't have kind of source of wealth, source of funds outside of their network, right? So it's a, it's a very interesting question because it goes back to an original point you made, Dave, which is, you know, focusing on the exchanges may not cover all the vulnerabilities and in fact doesn't right but that's where we've hung our hat from a regulatory standpoint right yeah right. Yeah. yeah and to, to to echo that point I mean you know uh, you're right the, the problem is with virtual currencies that identity is not native it will never be uh, you know as as they stand uh, identity is not native to this type of infrastructure so it's uh, th- this whole ecosystem is going to have to have a different solution now how have we dealt with it the exchange model you know dealing with exchanges um, you know I you know I'd make the point that um, we actually can we can say Say that the guidance that FinCEN, FinCEN gave in 2013 actually helped to reduce some illicit activity compared to jurisdictions where you didn't have that. So we did a study in our Bitcoin laundering study. We found just that. We found we looked at uh, transactions going to different digital currency services from 2013 to 2016, and we saw a huge gap between illicit activity coming from darknet markets or transactions from darknet markets um, uh, to services in Europe compared to North America. A huge, huge gap. And our our judgment there was well, that's because FinCEN did provide. Guidance that these exchanges, you know, largely at least, if they're going to operate, if they're going to, you know, prosper, they're going to have to see themselves as a regulated money transmitter. That that you know that I think that's the reason for the difference. Now we see Europe somewhat catching up and trying to put regulations in in place. Um, but I, I will say, so how do we deal with this gap? The fact that identity is not native to to these systems. Um, one way, again, these are not. Uh, these, this won't get rid of the problem, but one thing that's developing, uh, people trying to develop uh, AML protocols on top of the blockchain. So even if you know you have some platforms where right there's no identity, but if you have a business that's running this platform to do trading, um, the business uh, can institute you know AML and KYC 
protocols and procedures, and then you can create software that will sort of do that. But that's a second layer. Um, um, you know, so that's that's one way of doing it. I think this issue of identity, which is a little bit different from just the the technical, the financial aspect of these uh, currencies, um, there may have to be ways to verify identity that uh, and attaching it to cryptocurrencies. Uh, obviously, there are lots of concerns, right? Because people want that privacy. But um, as there are uh, improvements in cryptography and ways of creating a digital identity that maybe could be controlled, perhaps that could be connected with some of these platforms. Uh, but again, this is very nascent stuff. Um, I'm not exactly sure how it's going to shape out, but the identity issue is probably going to be key. Dave, before we leave this question of regulation, because there, there is a there is a dual challenge here of technology outracing uh, reg- regulation and regulators' ability to understand kind of risk, vulnerability, and the balance you described. Um, there's also the challenge of regulatory arbitrage, um, and the challenge is sort of a race to the bottom to attract new technologies uh, by being. Uh, less onerous with regulatory demands, right? So there's that classic debate. But just so the listeners have a, a framework as we as we begin to close out the discussion, what what authorities are are kind of looking to regulate this sector, and and what's sort of the next stage of regulation or standard setting in this space? What what are you seeing? Yeah. So it, look, I mean, there's no question that that FinCEN's guidance from 2013. Uh, was helpful in getting some of the illicit activity out of the United States and, and pushing it other places, but it's a perfect illustration of what happens with the with the arbitrage. And you know, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind with virtual currencies is you have the you have the technology problem and you have technology outracing regulators, um, which has really never been a story that ends happily. I think throughout, if you if you look throughout economic history, the, the stories just tend not to have very happy endings. Um, so you've got that, but you but you so you have that problem with virtual currencies, and then the other problem that you have is that virtual currencies are generally treated as money services businesses. Now uh, around the world, you have a you have a regulatory regime for banks. Um, the regulatory regime for money services businesses tends to be uh, less demanding, both in terms of what the rules are and in terms of what what actually happens in, in an examination, how often an examination happens. So you have a vulnerability with respect to money services businesses. Uh, virtual currencies are in some way a subset of that, but also come with, a, also come with an additional set of challenges for Unique regulators. Challenges, yeah. Very interesting. All right. I'm, I'm going to ask you both. I have a, kind of an answer to this question too, but I'm going to ask you both kind of lightning round fashion. What you see as kind of interesting or important developments you see coming down uh, the the track in terms of virtual currencies, whether it's with respect to adoption, risk, or regulation. Mm-hmm. So the um, one thing I would flag, um, I touched on it, but I didn't name it, is this new innovation of decentralized exchanges. So we've talked about exchanges which are you know, like typical, you know, MSBs, where you know someone um, uh, takes possession of your of your money and facilitates the trade. Decentralized exchanges are uh, new platforms which are basically being built built where software does trades for tokens directly. Um, and usually we're talking where fiat is fiat currency is not involved. So Bitcoin to Ethereum to Monero, these are crypto to crypto exchanges. But in this situation, um, the the platform does not have to take 
customer information. Um, it, you know, you basically have smart contracts, which are you know you you write in code to actually facilitate the trade, and by pointing one address, which may be anonymous or pseudonymous, to another address, the train the trade is transferred. And um, there's a growth in this now. Right now, they're they're very small in terms of transactions. There's not a lot of volume, but there's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of building. There are companies who are forming to do this. They're actually fulfilling one need, a security issue, because a security need because there's a huge vulnerability with centralized exchanges because they're they can be seen as honeypots, right? They take possession of all these tokens. They have them on central servers, even though it's a decentralized currency. This there's there's still in essence an intermediary to to facilitate the trade. Now we're making the trade software and. There are questions, and we've talked to um, some of the folks building these, and I would say there's a disconnect with, um, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, I may say, well, you're definitely a money transmitter, and you should be doing the same thing that a centralized exchange is doing, um, but that's not always the perception with some of these firms, with some of these firms that are creating these new platforms. So I think that's something to watch because there's more interest in these types of platforms, um, and there are going to be more regulatory challenges. Fantastic. Dave? Uh, I think you're going to see regulators. I think you're going to see law enforcement become more assertive in this space. Uh, So last year, FinCEN FinCEN took an enforcement action against a virtual currency exchanger located outside the United States in concert with a a DOJ action against the same entity in person. that person was actually taken into custody in Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not a that that's not a I'm going to indict somebody because it feels good. That's that's I'm going to indict somebody and I'm actually going to uh, I'm actually going to try them. Right, and the U.S. is still trying to get him extradited. Right, but it, that they but you know I mean they they notionally have their have their hands on. I mean that's yeah. a that's a real case. Right. Uh, so you know there there are, there are people who understand who understand this very well. And who understand the regulations very well, and I, I think that you're going to start to see regulators become more and more assertive in the space in an enforcement context. And then, you know, I think following that, I think you would be you would be likely to see some of the some of the rules start to change mm-hmm. uh, because they're they're with each with each examination, I think that they're getting a better understanding of how these systems how these systems actually work, where the hooks are, and where the and where the right places are. To, to place regulation to ensure maximum visibility um, at the lowest cost. Fascinating. Let me let me offer my own uh, thoughts in the three categories we're talking about: adoption, risk, and regulation. On adoption, I think um, one interesting arena where I think we square the circle on the vulnerabilities that we've been talking about is the use of virtual currencies in particular high-risk corridors or environments where. Uh, the the mode of transacting is uh, hi- of heightened risk because a terrorist organization controls the territory or because a regime is incredibly corrupt um, or an environment is in crisis mode. Um, the adoption of an ecosystem where virtual currencies actually provide for not just the ability to transfer value and, and pay for food and, and goods, but also allows for traceability in a way that cash transactions wouldn't, right? So it's virtual currencies actually helping to deal with what is inherent high risk. So I think I think we'll begin to see dimensions of that. And I think the most interesting part of that will be, will you see virtual currencies emerge uh, or pockets of it as um, a counter to control by authoritarian states? Um, and I think that's something to watch in the in the coming months and years. Uh, on on risks, uh, Yaya, going back to some of the work we've done together, 
I think this idea of alliance of uh, crypto rogues. Um, I don't think that I don't think anyone is concerned that the petro is going to suddenly take off or that the crypto ruble will be a a predominant currency in international trade. Um, but I do think it's something worth watching, and I do think it's a vulnerability to the extent that you have networks or exchanges operated by and established by rogue states or networks that begin to then collaborate and create a broader um, digital ecosystem that allows exchange backed by real value, something like you know oil uh, options or, or, or other uh, forms of collateral that then allows a Russia, a China, a Venezuela, an Iran uh, criminal network to actually uh, operate outside the bounds of the formal financial system or the gaze of authority. So I think that's something to, to watch too. And then finally, Dave, to your point, I think you're absolutely right. There's going to be more enforcement and attention. I also think there's a desire to see what the potential virtual currencies look like. So I do think central banks, especially the G7 and G7 countries and banks, commercial banks in those countries, are going to try to find ways of leveraging not just the blockchain, but use of virtual currency, not to replace fiat currency, not to replace the yen or the dollar or the, or the pound, but to work perhaps in parallel or to make elements of economies, payment systems, trade finance, for example, more efficient. So I think that's certainly something we're going to see. We're already seeing lots of investment in that space. Uh, and it makes, frankly, all of this all the more interesting and worth another podcast. So, um, yeah, yeah, Part Dave, two. thank you very much. That was a great discussion. I uh, hope the listeners enjoyed it. We hope you learned something and come back for our next episode. Have a great day. 